Welcome, guys, to the Behind the Show podcast. My name is James Gearing, and this is episode 133. And I am so honored to have on the show this week retired First Sergeant Matt Eversman. Now, Matt was portrayed by Josh Harnett in the movie Black Hawk Down. And he obviously was an army ranger who fought alongside so many brave men in the Battle of Mogadishu. Um, And this conversation was incredible, yet I feel we barely scratched the surface of Matt's story and his philosophy and lessons learned. So I want to preface this introduction by saying that there will be a part two, and I would love to travel down to South Florida and actually interview Matt face-to-face in that second uh, episode. So we discuss an array of topics from kind of lessons learned, leadership, ownership, um, you know, the effect of reducing budgets on, you know, army, special forces, fire, police, um, and just an array of topics and obviously the, the events of that day. So as I always say, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate the show, leave reviews. And the most important thing is just share, share this episode, share other episodes if you've loved them and help get this project and these amazing men and women's stories to every single person around the planet because I think they need to be heard. So with that being said, I introduce to you retired first sergeant Matt Eversman. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show, and I want to give you the first, the, the full rank initially. So you're retired first sergeant Matt Eversman. Yep, James, that is spot on. All right, good, because I've made some military faux pas in the past, so I want to make sure I nail it. I called the uh, um, lieutenant colonel Dave Grossman, lieutenant Dave Grossman, once, and uh, I was corrected immediately. <laughs> but you know, it, it's funny, and, and like like everything, it's like trying to learn the hierarchy to the fire department for an outsider. It's I, I've, it's never bothered me. Uh, to this day, people still call me Sergeant Eversman, and it just confuses them trying to explain first sergeant and the difference. It's like you know what? I'll take I'll take a pay. Uh, I'll take I'll take a reduction in rank. <laughs> All right. Well, I always like to start at the very very beginning, and, and obviously, a a I would love to talk about you know the the specific battle that you were, um, I guess, most well-known for. I don't want to focus on that the whole podcast, though. I want to talk about some other areas and, and all the, the, the years and years of service that you had after. But I also would love to find out, you know, who you were and what made you the man that, that on that day was put in that position. So where were you born? Okay, yeah, I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, I was born on the south shore of Long Island um, in Truth be told, 1966, 52 years old. So, yeah, I was a, a suburban New York kid, um, youngest of four, of four children, just going about my business, doing the same knucklehead things that everybody does in uh, young life. and wound up moving to um, Virginia uh, for middle school and high school. So that's kind of where the, the story really begins. But I, I must tell everybody that I am, a, uh, I am a New Yorker by birth. All right. Did you have any military in your family? Uh, I did. You know, interesting. My my dad uh, was um, born in the 1930, uh, uh, 38. No, no, 32, excuse me. And so when he graduated from college, uh, he was an ROTC when everybody did ROTC, but um, too old for Korea, too young for Vietnam. And uh, but he did a couple of years overseas. And um, then my oldest sister 
Uh, she wound up uh, becoming a nurse in the army for a couple of years. And then um, one of my brothers was uh, an engineer in the Marine Corps. But uh, I, I'm the youngest of baby. I was, uh, and also I'm proud to say the only enlisted soldier uh, in the family and the one that stuck it out the longest. All right. So then uh, aside from his time in the military, what else did your dad do as a career? And what did your mom do as well? Yeah, no, my mother, uh, domestic goddess, just the most, the, the epitome of a mother and a homemaker. Uh, she kept the whole family going and uh, ran that ship just the way it was supposed to be. When we lived in New York, my father, uh, like all the other suburban fathers, pretty much worked in uh, the city, took the train in to Manhattan, worked downtown on Wall Street, and then uh, got the bug of becoming an entrepreneur. Um, so we moved to Virginia and uh, bought a small farm and um, eventually had a little lumberyard and a hardware store. Oh, brilliant. All right. So then um, when you were young, did you did you have aspirations to become a soldier or join the military? I, you know, I, James, I, I say I did. And I don't mean that like it was it was predestined as much as I think every um, certainly in rural Virginia the idea of, of, you know, everyone for whatever reason wants to be, a, you know, a, a, a Navy pilot or Marine. Um, why? I don't know. No offense to my Navy and Marine brothers and sisters, but I just sort of, you know, no one ever thought about, hey, I'm going to go be a Ranger and an infantryman or a knuckle dragger. I, I'm going to I'm going to serve. I'm going to do something really exciting and glamorous. So aviation kind of always seemed like it. But, uh, you know, as life goes on, it came closer and closer um, I realized one, I didn't really have that desire and two, probably not the aptitude either. And, but I did want to serve. And I think that to answer the question without rambling too much, the, the idea of service was always kind of there and, um, you know, just giving back a little bit. Uh, I don't want to sound more noble than, than I am by any means, but you know, that, that was, uh, kind of never seemed unnatural, I guess, is my, my, my answer. Right, and then and then as as a young man or as, as a child, even what about your um, your athleticism? Were you a sportsman? Um, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Because if I say <laughs> I was, um, I would tell you, you know, I played at a lot of sports, but I don't think I was ever that good. But much, you know, like uh, I, you know, and I hate to sound so vanilla, James, but this, you know, you compete like everybody else does, and your youngest of four kids, of course, you got two older brothers you got to fight with all the time. And, um, you know, I would say just the normal, I think I was, was it maybe average, if not a little bit above average, but, you know, by no means a, uh, a star in any particular sport, though basketball kind of became my, my big passion. Um, you know, I, I think I, I would put myself in that, you know, I held my own, um, not a starter, but a good sixth or seventh guy off the bench. All right. And then your journey into the military then from from high school. Yeah. So um, I, I like to call it it's my my Sante raid. Uh, you know, it's the most successful failure I've I've had. I wound up, um, you know, going to college uh, for a couple of years right after high school and um, really wandering. I, you know, I, I like everybody and I don't want to dismiss it. Um, I really probably shouldn't have gone on to school, but I did because I thought that was what was expected. And um, wound up studying economics and French, of all things, for a couple of years as my grades deteriorated by the day. And um, at the end of my junior year in college, the the uh, administration very kindly put me out of my misery and asked me to take a take a sabbatical. 
um, which turned into my army enlistment and a 20 year career. So I, I really have them to thank for bouncing me out of school uh, because of my, my poor academics. But, um, you know, what it showed me was that I, I, I wasn't mature enough for college. I really didn't have any burning desire to do it anyway. And um, while I was on this this forced break, um, literally, I, I remember a buddy of mine came into the lumber yard and um, hadn't seen him since we graduated high school three years prior. And, and he, it turned out, had left school, enlisted in the army and was in Germany, um, back when Germany was still divided. And I can remember listening to him over the course of selling him, you know, some sheetrock and two by fours, uh, you know, stories about being in Berlin and being on the Czech border. And man, that just lit the fuse, pardon the pun. Yeah, that was, you, you mentioned college and I heard you talking to Matt Best on his podcast not too long ago. Um, and, and it's something that I've also talked about as well. And I've, I've gone through our higher education system here and my wife is going through it right now on, on route to optometry school. But I think that there are some careers and some people who's, who that path almost makes it more difficult to reach the profession that they're trying to get to. And, and I heard you mention about you know that and, and, and trade schools. What's your opinion of our, and this isn't like a political opinion, but just um, of, of our college system versus vocational school? And, and maybe is there any, any direction that we should be pushing that in the future? Yeah, listen, that's a that's a phenomenal question, and I think it is has nothing to do with politics and everything to do with reality. Uh, I think that um, listen, you you you, uh, as I read your bio, have seen the differences in systems from from the UK to the United States. Um, some things better, some things worse. But we get here, and there's just this expectation that we all have to go uh, onto secondary education in order to achieve this American dream and. What I realized, and I like to think that I'm a living proof that you don't have to. There's no requirement other than what we put in our own minds to that says you've got to have a four-year degree in order to be branded as as com- competitive. Um, I believe that somewhere we lost our way with the trades, and we fell out. Maybe it was in the '80s and all the greed of 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 that big money. But you know, listen. At the end of the day. We need we need really great service industry, you know, people, you know, we need great painters and roofers and shinglers and plumbers and welders, let alone mechanics. We we need them all. And somehow we've gotten to this point where nobody, no Americans seem to want to do these jobs that require, you know, um, a fair amount of brute strength and a definite amount of street smarts and brain power in order to um, execute, you know, a particular operation. And that's what, again, I believe is the trade. So I'll go, I, you know, like it matters that I go on record saying, uh, I think this whole idea of going to college is overrated. I think it's been blown out of proportion. I think there are plenty of kids that can go out and be supremely successful without a college degree. Now, you know, I, while on the subject, I, I just say one more thing and shut up. The this idea, though, that, hey, listen, I, I don't have aptitude to be a stockbroker. I mean, I realize that. I'm, it's the reason I had to enlist. I, I don't understand macro and microeconomic theory. I just don't. It's like demolitions. I don't understand it. 
I see it, but I don't know how to do it. So in order to say, hey, Matt, you know, you're a knucklehead without a college degree, go to Wall Street. Well, clearly that logic doesn't work. And there are some things that require us to have credentials, I think is really the applicable word, in order to to, to kind of participate in their reindeer games. But as a whole, I don't see any reason why any young man or woman should feel obligated to go into that much debt um, after after graduation in order to start living the dream. Um, I think we got to re-educate our employers. We got to recalibrate and we got to get people thinking like there's an amazing pool of talent that are constantly coming out of colleges and high schools in this case that, um, you know, with the right mentoring, coaching and training are, are going to deliver. And uh, one last thing, I, I'm lying through my teeth when I said that last thing was my last thing. But, <laughs> um, I'm an asshole sometimes. The, <laughs> The, the, this is by all, neither do I want to sound like anyone that goes on to college is wrong and that all colleges ought to be burned to the ground and that they're horrible institutions. I, I really, that is not at all what I'm saying. There are some, some young men and women that absolutely should continue. They have the opportunity and they will flourish and grow and, you know, expand their mind. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's probably a, a good investment for some. Um, you know, we've got to raise the watermark on, on education in this country anyway. We've got a lot of we got a lot of jackass dummies running around that uh, you know could stand to have uh, some more education pumped into their to their brain housing groups. So if you're listening, and I don't mean to offend anybody about not going to college or going to college, but I just say it's at the end of the day, it, it, it's not a requirement for success. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that we're seeing in the fire service where for promotion now they're requiring you know, two four year degrees of which I have. So it's not, not a barrier for me, but um, that's almost uh, creating an environment where people that haven't maybe walked the walk and got the skills in the profession itself are fulfilling this administrative criteria and getting degrees in, in you know, whatever, and then being able to promote. And then having a complete disconnect from the actual profession that they are now leading. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those, I guess, like everything, you know, with the right balance, um, you know, you, you start a business or you go into business, it's important to learn the fundamentals of economics and, you know, how to read a balance sheet and how to do all that stuff that you might not naturally learn on the job, you know, in your trade and learning. So like you said, some organizational skills and management skills and, you know, how offices and in this case, maybe a firehouse should be run and managing all that. I mean, of course, you know, learning how to do that might require formal education. It absolutely is. And listen, as I've said before about some of my dear brothers and sisters at arms, um, there are some kids that were really great young soldiers. They were good machine gunners. Um, and they just didn't have the aptitude to advance for whatever reason. They 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 weren't going to be able to elevate to that next echelon, and and that's okay, you know. But just we got to understand that you know we we've got to find that happy balance in between you know the technical and tactical skills in order to advance. And I'm sure in 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 your world that uh, you know there's plenty of jackass chiefs running around there that. Uh, you know, ain't smelled smoke in a long time. Um, much like in the army, there's a lot of, a lot of generals that have never fired a pistol or a rifle in a long time, but you know, take the good with the bad. 
Yeah. Now, now that brings me to another point as well. I, by choice, have never promoted um, because I just love being a door kicker. You know, I mean, in, in the fire service side, you know, I can't. It kills me to think I'd be outside the, the house fire instead of inside looking for someone. Um, but there's obviously a huge amount of my peers that are, you know, wanting to get to those officers positions and doing very, very well. But one of the things that I, um, I have a problem with personally is that in order to be a leader, you need to promote. And, and I, my personal opinion is that you can be a leader at any rank and not have to start accumulating bugles to call yourself a leader. What's your perspective on that? Uh, 100%. You know, like I said, I, I was an enlisted soldier, um, at the time, I had enough uh, college credits that I could have gone to officer candidate school, um, you know, to to be promoted from within to become a commissioned officer in the army. And uh, you know, a lot of a lot of my my mentors were were really pushing me hard to do that because that seems like the natural progression. You know, you're an enlisted guy, you now become an officer, you become a platoon leader, on on and on and on. And hey, at the end of the day, you're going to make some more dough. There's no doubt about it. And uh, that sounded really, really tempting to me until I really started digging in deep on one of those moments of clarity that happens every once in a while where I realized, you know, um, mathematically, while I will make more money, my time with troops will be significantly limited. And like you said, you know, you, you, you would be outside, you know, watching people run into the fire as opposed to run into the fire. And, uh, at the end, I'm like, you know, I, I don't want to just be a lieutenant and platoon leader for eight months. I'd like to be a squad leader and platoon sergeant for three years like that. That that's that was really for me at the end. That was that was what it is. I want to stay with the boys. I wanted to, um, you know, keep doing and be a, uh, um, you know, kicking down a door and, and doing all the, the things that soldiers do. So that that I, I'm, I'm right on board with you. Exactly. Right. Well, let's talk about your your. Um, journey through the military then because you didn't initially go into the rangers did you no um this was one of those uh, typical stories that i'm sure you know anybody any veteran that might be listening has been down that you know you go to the recruiter thinking one thing and you walk out the door getting another and um you know i, I pinch myself sometimes looking back just the dumb luck of how it all worked out my my idea had always been though to to become a ranger, um, I'd seen it on a um, you know a sixty minutes show that back in the early eighties they did a profile of it, and I'm like, man, that's really really cool. They look high speed, and um, you know, I joined the army and wound up on a on a what they call an open contract, which means after basic training they could have could have sent me anywhere in the world. There was no guarantee of anything on the other side other than I was going to be an infantryman. Um, and again, I didn't know any different. So I'm like, oh, you know, OK, that must be how it works. And, uh, you know, the grace of God, I was um, the, the the basic training um, cohort that that enlisted when I did all unbeknownst to us were tagged for a brand new light infantry unit up at Fort Drum, New York, um, the newest unit element of the 10th Mountain Division, which was being re um uh, I don't know what the doctrinal word is, but, you know, the 10th Mountain had gone out of basically gone out of business after World War II. And in uh, 1988, they were bringing it, uh, un, you know, uh, unflagging, uncasing the flag, the colors. That's what it is, uncasing the colors and re, you know, instituting the 10th Mountain Division. So our whole basic training battalion 
um, was sent as one cohort through basic training, through AIT, and then up to Fort Drum to start a whole brand new unit uh, from start, which really was actually very cool. It was a great introduction for me into um, the military and into the infantry and uh, uh, just absolutely loved it. Right. Well, it's funny. You just reminded me of a story. I don't know if you ever met um, Pat McNamara. He was uh, Delta. You know, I, I have not. Um, I, I know this name, but I do not know him. Okay. Well, he's, I mean, he's just, uh, you know, appears to be the exact same type of man that you fought alongside with in uh, Mogadishu. But um, when he enlisted, his dad actually sent him with a lawyer. So that the lawyer actually looked over the paperwork and made sure that when he finally signed it, it was exactly what he was trying to get. I'd never heard anyone say that before. That's funny. That's awesome. Well, good for him and good for his dad for for thinking that. Uh, you know, to make sure that they're not, um, you know, doing those rascally recruiting things that they do. Time. <laughs> All right. So then, how did you then get from there to Ranger School? Yeah, so um, I, I while I was up at Fort Drum, you know, brand new unit, the Army was throwing a fair amount of dough at it so we could get all the, you know, as many military school opportunities out to the ranks as possible. So, you know, I, I actually went to sniper school first. Um, we had to go while I was up at Fort Drum. I got sniper school, volunteered for ranger school. And with that, you get airborne school. And then uh, I went to SEER school, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape School. Uh, you know, and all this, in the which was interesting, all in the conventional um, army, you know, the light infantry of it. And for me, it was just a, a, an awesome adventure. Now, keep in mind, this is peacetime, you know, and it's easy to beat your, your chest about, you know, going to war during peacetime and no one's shooting at you. But... Uh, you know, for me, I had nothing to compare it to. So I'm like, this is absolutely great. I'm doing all this, this great hard training. I'm pushing myself to the limits. Um, this is absolutely just more than I could have dreamed of. Truly, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm digging it all the way home every day. It's really pretty cool, except that during my first three years in service, um, two things happened. First, the Gulf War kicked off. Or no, excuse me. First, um, Panama happened. We invaded Panama, you know, in uh, December 20th of 1989. And I was in ranger school, actually, when that happened. So missed that. And on top of that, my unit, the 10th Mountain Division, didn't deploy to Panama. So we were kind of 0 for 1 in real world deployments. And then after that, the, you know, the Gulf War happened. And, you know, everybody in the world is, is seems is going to go over and um, kick the shit out of Saddam Hussein, except for the 10th Mountain Division. And so we're basically watching this all on TV. So we're 0 for 2 and going to war. And, man, that puts a that puts a really bad taste in an, in an infantryman's mouth um, that you get left out of going to the show. Yeah, well, it's an interesting um, yeah, point that you make as well, because I've had a few a few uh, members of special operations and special forces on the show who their career was uh, either side of 2001. So, yep. and it's always interesting to see what their training looked like before and then what the training looked like after. So when, when you were leading up to that, was any of the training um, preparing you in the right way for what ultimately you would see in Somalia? Uh, the, the short answer, yes. Um, I, I would I would absolutely say that without a doubt. The short answer is yes. 
I, I all the army training and and a part of this also, James. I do have to say, at the time, I didn't realize it because you're a young jackass and you don't really understand um, the process through which the army. And I couldn't talk about the Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, but certainly the army training process uh, is actually very well thought out, very performance oriented, problem um, um, programmatic, and progressive. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. And again, at the time, I didn't realize it, but looking back, it absolutely was very methodical in learning the basics, moving up to what we eventually would do in wartime. Now, the the comma but is, it wasn't until I left the conventional army and got into the special operations command in the 75th Ranger Regiment that the training was... Um, much more acute in detail and complexity that really started testing the skills and training on the skills uh, to a higher level of proficiency um, that would actually be, um, what's the word, you know, that you would actually fall back on in combat. And I, I, I have to just say one more thing on that. I know I say one more thing a lot. Um, that's not a backhand compliment to the conventional army, nor to the 10th Mountain Division. You know, listen, you got a, a, a division of 25,000 soldiers and a limited budget, you know, for, for guns and ammo for everybody. And then you go down to a unit that's in aggregate, you know, got 3,000 people with the same budget. You, you get a you get a shit ton more training accomplished, um, you know, in a smaller unit with a big budget, I guess is where I'm going. And so that magnifies the um, or punctuates the 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 same army training process. It's just you get a lot more, um, you know, you have a lot more training aids and opportunities, um, you know, to to travel and train and practice again, you know, just to prepare for whatever might happen somewhere down the road in some distant land uh, when we get the call. Yeah, and you hit on a point that I've I've talked about before, and that's why I I do like comparing police fire, you know, uh, to special forces, special operations, because you know we especially uh, you know firefighters, we don't know what the hell we're going to be called to. It could be a fire, it could be a cardiac arrest, it could be a plane in a tree. I mean, you know, school shooting, um, and so there's this array of skills that we need to to be on top of. Um, and so I think there's two areas there. As far as who employs us, I think that bar needs to be set very, very high to get the men and women that are able to do that. But as you also mentioned, there needs to be an understanding that there needs to be a budget and a support um, and, a, and a work schedule that's going to create an environment where these men and women can train to the level they need to and also to, to not be exhausted, to, to thrive when they actually have to go out there and do their job. Uh, well, absolutely. Listen, there, there, there is, uh, you can only, you know, you can only crack that whip on racehorses so much before they can't run any faster. You know, you just, you just can't, you, you can't run them to death, even though they are willing and able and will do it until the end. They can't be, they've got to be managed. They've got to be led. And, uh, I think that is a, a, a problem. Listen, you, you can just read the newspaper on any given day, you know, after 17 years of war, um, you know, our special operations command uh, in general is is really worn down. And, you know, some of the problems you see, you know, we start 
you know, there's some attrition problems and there's some broken system problems. And, you know, gosh, if manpower starts to leave, then we need to grab more people. And if you grab more people, you know, naturally the, the standards may lower a little bit. And, you know, so it's this, this dog wagging the tail sometimes of, you know, you, you just can't run them to death. You just, you, you, you can't, or else the whole thing's going to collapse. Yeah, and then and like you said, the budget having having the the best equipment and the budget for the training, which is something that I had uh, your fellow ranger Tim Kennedy in town a little while ago. I did his sheepdog response class. Oh, cool! And uh, you know, comparing what they're teaching just in two days with the unarmed combat and the uh, the way they teach weapons versus how I'm sure many law enforcement departments are taught just in a range shooting paper targets, and then you know maybe in the academy they learn some unarmed stuff. You realize that that you need to have so much more training and that is going to require a budget. Just, it's just simple economics. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, uh, no matter what we like to think, it ain't unlimited. No, exactly. And that's, that's where then, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, responsibility goes on the citizens of which you and I are also taxpayers. So we're not, you know, pointing our fingers at other people, but the priorities need to be that they are told what, you know, the military, the police, the fire, EMS are actually expected to do. And therefore, instead of selling budget cuts to the public, they need to be educated and say, look, for an extra, you know, few pennies out of your, your paycheck, when they show up on your children's worst day, they're going to be as well prepared as they can possibly be. Absolutely. And listen, not to go down that rabbit hole too much, but, uh, you know, every time I pass a fat, a fat cop, I'm just thinking, could you actually catch a bad guy if he was holding my daughter, you know, in a run? Like, could you do that? You know, could you take a shot at, at 15 meters? Um, you know, when's the last time you went to the range shooting paper targets or not? When's the last time you, you were, you know, I start thinking, I look, I look at him all the time tactically and I think, man, I'm not sure as a taxpayer we're getting our, you know, our money's worth with all these guys because clearly – um, they ain't catching anybody anytime soon. Yeah, and that, not that's, in a foot race. No, and that's a complete reality. And then same with the very, very small, you know, um, police officers, firefighters. Are they are they training to be as strong? Are they, you know, in the jujitsu gym all the time? And some of them are, and they're able to perform in- incredibly well. But that ownership is the other side that I talk about a lot here. Yes, we need to, you know, be given a good environment to to thrive by the employer, but but the ownership of yourself. So in the Ranger Regiment, um, you know, how, how high was that bar set and what did you do to weed out the ones that, that had no right being there? Yeah. So listen, it, it, it's, a, it's a, my first introduction. Um, you know, when, let me just back up for a second. You know, when you were asking me about, you know, how competitive I was, you know, as an athlete or how good an athlete, you know, at a high school level, that's kind of our first, generally speaking for all of us, that's our first, introduction to um you know you you pass fail you had the skills to make the team you did or you didn't have the skills and you didn't like that was it you know there was no middle area to either your name made the roster or you didn't and you know i was at the time fortunate enough that you know i did make the varsity basketball team and but i'm going with this you get out to the army and the standards are certainly a lot higher than the normal high school but they're not that high they're not impossible to me and you know but once you get into the army if you keep your nose clean and your head above water you know generally speaking you're gonna be okay you know you you can plot along at a 
comfortable level and really not be that challenged. And that's just the fact. Um, you get into this next command, the next echelon, the special operations world in the Ranger Regiment, where the standards are uh, demonstrably higher. And not only are they higher in writing, uh, they're actually enforced. So now you've got to pass through a couple of hurdles, you know, these selections to um, figure out if you, one, got the got the got the the talent, the skills, the heart, the motivation, the drive and, you know, and the knowledge and wherewithal to do it. So that natural process weeds out, you know, some of the riffraff, so to speak. Um, and then you have that constant um, challenge of not just meeting, but exceeding the high, the, those high standards and being held accountable. And oh, by the way, you're in a unit that is um, this self-licking ice cream cone of accountability and responsibility. So everybody's constantly nipping at your heels to, you know, succeed. Um, and I mean that, I think, I do believe in my heart, it was always for the greater good and not from a, you know, trying to see somebody fail. But, you know, this competition to, Who's going to be the, the the main effort? Who's going to be the tip of the spear always? And, you know, if you're not first, you're last kind of mentality. Well, that goes a long way in the culture of the unit. Um, it's not to say it's perfect. Listen, there you meet people everywhere in the most elite units of our military. And you're like, how on earth did you get in there? You're just a shitbag. Like you're you, you might be really strong, but you might be really good marksman or something. But you're just an asshole. Like you, you, you're just not a good guy. Every once in a while, they get through the system. It, it just happens. But I think, by and large, in all honesty, um, I think if you if you canvass the ranks, you would find that you know the further you progress within that command and that special operations community, um, it, it sort of naturally levels it out. That the the people that are just trying to showboat, um, generally speaking, they they don't last and they're not going to make it. Yeah, and that speaks a lot for keeping that bar high. And we've got departments out there that do that, that probably don't have any of the fat cops, as you said. And then I know very personally of ones where the bar has basically fallen off the rack and is lying on the floor. Actually, it fell in a trench below the floor. <laughs> and, you know, people you know will, will get their unions to fight any annual physical test. And, you know, you end up with exactly what you're talking about. Your kids just died because they couldn't do their job. Absolutely. And listen, I, I by no means would I presume to know the inner workings of the police department, the fire department. I've, talk, I've spoken certainly to enough uh, law enforcement uh, at local, state and federal level to understand that um, complexity with union. And, you know, we're not going to have this, you know, the physical fitness standards or the, the marksmanship standards or whatever. And I, I for the life of me, I just. I just can't understand it. I don't know how I don't know how anybody that carries a gun, for instance, and not to bag on the on on the boys and girls in blue by any means. I love them. But I, I don't know how anybody that carries a sidearm is not scared shitless every single day thinking about what happens if I have to draw this weapon, you know, and put two in the chest and one in the head of a bad guy. You know, could I do that? You know, just like that. Could could I run? to the sound of gunfire and, and pull that trigger. Um, that, 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 I, that would be frightening to me to think that uh, that's what they expected and I don't know how to do it. Like I, I can't even, I can't even fathom that. But um, I, I suspect that there are some cultures within that community that are, that are allowing that if not promoting it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that the problem is, as we mentioned earlier, if if you are able to climb the ladder with um, either a lack of knowledge or even a fear of the profession that you're in, whether it's a, a, the administrative ladder or even the union ladder, and you're scared of being challenged physically or with your skills, then now you're in a very dangerous place where you're able to enact the very things that are going to make the environment that, that you're trying to protect actually a lot more dangerous. Yep. Yep, uh, spot on, man. And, and that is, uh, listen, at the end, and, and this, uh, this is me being somewhat philosophical, you know, after only four cups of coffee this morning, but, uh, you know, you, you wonder every day when somebody gets up and, and, you know, scrapes their face or brushes their fangs, are they looking in the mirror thinking, you know, I, I'd like to just be average today. You know, I just want to be, you know, second best today. Um, I, I, in my mind, I can't comprehend that. Like I can't comprehend somebody that's saying like, I'm quite content just to be average. I mean, I joke about living a vanilla life now, but somewhere deep inside my little knucklehead brain, I still like to think I'm a tough guy. Um, but this idea though, of, I don't want to go out and try and be the best today. I don't want to, you know, who does that? Like how, how could that, how could you function in this, in this particular profession of law enforcement and um, the the fire community and say, yeah, you know, I think being being average is okay today. Like that that's craziness. Yeah, I couldn't. I absolutely couldn't agree more. And I'm so glad that we kind of f- talked about this subject for a while. Well, speaking of the tough guy, because you know, let's let's be honest. Not only were you in you know an elite uh, unit, but also you were tested yeah, more probably than than most units have in in our history. Um, but I'd love to kind of get into that area now so before we talk about your actual deployment and how that kicked off i would like to just um if you're able to paint a picture of you know what the people of somalia were going through as far as um the the famine and what initially america was trying to do to help yeah so um this uh, two two, couple of things first of all um in 1992 when when i'm on the scene now uh, i had just left the 10th mountain division I've gotten down to the Ranger Regiment, the 3rd Ranger Battalion, Fort Benning, Georgia, and, you know, learned, drink it through a fire hose, again, no pun intended, of everything about Ranger life. Um, my old unit at the 10th Mountain, the 2nd Battalion, 87th Infantry, uh, deployed shortly after I left to Somalia as part of this UN peacekeeping operation. Um, and I got to be honest, I, I'm like, I'm not sure I could have picked out Somalia on the map in early 1992. Um, well, Somalia, if you just Google it and you can take three minutes to read the history, um, you know, it, it's a failed state. Uh, there's nothing going on in Somalia except that it's the Horn of Africa. Um, it is just uh, the right in the perfect location with two deep water ports that if we, the United States or the bad guy Russians, were going to fight a naval battle in the Indian Ocean, Somalia is a great place to stage, which is probably the only reason anybody really gave a shit about it. And in the early 70s, the Russians really liked Somalia, so the United States was interested in it. And eventually the Russians left and went to, um, you know, across the border and the Americans came in and started to help, uh, you know, the Somalis do whatever they could do. They had some um, 
I think they they had some like sugar refining um, refineries, if I recall. Whatever it was, the U.S. was involved. Fast forward now, here we are in the 90s, you know, decades of civil war, um, malnutrition, sub-Saharan African life. I mean, it's just a it's a bad spot. The U.S. has long given up on it. Um, And we are watching these, uh, you know, the U.N. participate in trying to stop the, 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 um, mortality. I mean, you know, it's, it's horrible. And, you know, you've seen the pictures, everybody that's, that's watched the news, you know, over time, you can find it on the internet, you know, Christiane Amanpour, I like to talk about her a lot, but I mean this in, in a truly in a flattering sense, you know, she was one of the first that was broadcasting images from Somalia to the whole Western world and showing, you know, these people are dying by the thousands and, um, you know, it's really, really gotten out of control. There's no government to support it. It's just tribal warlords um, slash terrorists that are running ragged, um, letting people die, killing their own. And, you know, anybody with a conscience is called to say, hey, enough is enough. Uh, so there's a big U.N. Um, presence in Somalia in 1992, trying to um, make a little bit of uh, uh, order out of the chaos there. Um, I really don't want to suck up all the oxygen in the room on this, but uh, two things while you gave me the mic, I I want to point in as we get into the story. So you got this big um, humanitarian effort going on in Somalia. And that's everybody would nod their head and say it's, it's generally a good thing. All these U.N., Members of the UN are there taking place, helping support it. Everybody's happy that we're all doing good things. But, you know, when you look at the United Nations now, um, on one, at the time, the, the, the Secretary General was a guy named Boutros Boutros Ghali. And this is significant in the history books because he's Egyptian and he hates Mohammed Adid. You know, they don't like the Somalis in general. There's a cultural issue going on. So right off the bat, you've got some motives that are in conflict. You know, this the, the biggest, most prominent warlord in Somalia is this guy, Adid. The big dog in the fight at the UN is Boutros Boutros Ghali. They don't like each other. And oh, by the way, this country where Adid is, is starving and in chaos. So, you know, the recipe for disaster is already, you know, well in play before Eversman and the rest of these guys get involved. But, you know, setting that stage, James, I think it's important to understand, um, you know, whatever people think politically about the U.N. is is certainly um, up for discussion. But in the big picture, I I would be remiss if I didn't say, hey, they're, they're trying to move in the right direction. They're trying to do uh, the right thing in this big humanitarian aid. But, you know, as you all know, as everybody that's listening knows, generally speaking, it's clumsy at best and um, pretty inefficient in general. So that's where what's going on in 1992 is uh, a lot of people rowing hard to try and stop the famine, um, broker a little bit of peace deal and stop civil war. Right. And then, so what was it that took you and uh, Delta and, and the other um, members of the military that you guys were with to Somalia you know, that was that was separate from that mission? Yeah. So um, while this whole effort, this humanitarian effort is going on, um, a group of Pakistani soldiers 
um, are are ambushed and killed, slaughtered really by Mohammed Adid's militia. Um, I mean, it's barbaric what they do. They kill these Pakistani soldiers in uh, the broad daylight, right in the middle of the street. And uh, on top of that, other UN forces, it was proven, had watched it happen and never lifted a finger. And so um, the Pakistanis asked the United Nations for support afterwards and bring justice to it. And the United States was the only country that said, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, We'll help bring the right this wrong. We'll help capture Mohammed Adid. And that's when we put together this task force ranger, um, of which I was a member, to um, go to Mogadishu and capture Mohammed Adid. Like that, that was the mission. Right. Now, again, people listening, I'm sure, have seen the film. So I don't want, you know, to, to say, well, Matt, will you tell me every single step of what happened from then? Um, but just very briefly, so. What were expectations when you went in on uh, October 3rd? And then if you could kind of lead us through the the sequence of um, of things that happened that obviously worked against the initial plan. Yeah, so now this, and, and I, I must say, if, um, if, if you all, listeners, um, firemen and women, uh, and, and, and policemen, law enforcement, whoever's listening, um, I, I want you to, to, to listen carefully because uh, I, I, there, there's some, I believe, some really valuable points. And I don't mean to be presumptuous that I'm, you know, the, the gift of the Magi or the Oracle or anything. But, uh, you know, pay attention because we did a lot of things um, definitely wrong. I did a lot of things definitely wrong. And I made a lot of assumptions that were definitely wrong. Um, so please, you know, to answer your question, James. Uh, yeah. So here's here's the idea. On October 3rd, um, we know that two of Adid's top guys are going to meet in uh, in a pretty bad part of town and maybe even Adid himself will be there. So we're going to plan this raid to go capture him. The standard is that it's going to take 30 minutes in and out. You've read the book or seen the movie. You know that. Um, a couple of days prior to that, however, um, I myself had been um, – um, laterally promoted to from the two IC of our helicopter to the OIC, the officer in charge, because my my boss had to go home, was called home on a Red Cross emergency. So here I am, Staff Sergeant Eversman, now the chalk leader of Chalk Four, which um, you know we do it all the time. This uh, this fallout one drill where you assume command or assume charge the next level up, but now it's. In combat. So we're, you know, Matt Eversman has to make, uh, you know, come to reality that now when I make a decision on the battlefield, um, you know, it's my decision, my decision only to support the commander's intent and on, on, on. Bottom line is now I have a new responsibility and I have more authority. Um, you all, again, I say you all listen, if you read the book or seen the movie, um, daylight raid, we're going to go in. Uh, we know that it's going to be about a 30 foot fast rope insertion, which, you know, sucks, but it's not horrible. Um, and consequently, in our preparation that day, uh, we made some assumptions. First of all, we thought at daylight raid going in at 330 in the afternoon, we'll be home at 430. Uh, we don't need our night vision devices. So we didn't bring them um, 30 minutes, even though it is Africa and it's really hot uh, at the time we had canteens and camelbacks i think uh you know i don't need two canteens of water because 
who's going to have time to drink water? So I took one out because, oh, by the way, I could put seven 30 round, you know, magazines in a, in a, in a, in a canteen pouch. That'll be good. Um, previously, even with a couple of firefights, guys realized that, hey, the body armor that we had at the time was very ill fitting for some. And so the back plates were too big. So they take them out. And everyone's like, hey, you know, who's going to get shot in the back? Nobody's going to think about that. So right off the bat, those are four things before we even started this mission that were completely, absolutely incorrect. And we're going to come back and bite us in the ass. Uh, my only feeble in this running commentary, my only feeble um, um, uh, observation of it all is that, you know, for me, the lesson learned as a leader going back is, you know, you can unwittingly validate a negative. You know what I mean? You can unwittingly, hey, nothing happened because I didn't have my backplate in last time. So I ought to be good. It's all right. It's unnecessary. Well, clearly now you're like, what a stupid logic. But at the time, it made very good sense that at my level, we're not going to get shot in the back. We would get shot in the front, in the chest. So here we are, October 3rd. And before I go on, James, does that make sense? I hope I'm explaining. In my mind, it sounds crystal clear. but It makes um, perfect sense. Uh, and just to unline so the, the mentality that we see a lot in, in some of the, the places we work is, well, it's never happened, so therefore it'll never happen. Instead of it hasn't happened, so therefore the probability of it happening is even greater. Exactly. Absolutely. No, if you can think it, it'll happen. Um, we'll get to that at the end. So, uh, long and short, um, we, we, the bad guys are, are, are the, the spies show that the bad guys are where they're supposed to be. And we launch on this mission. And again, um, you know, yours truly is in charge of his helicopter for the first time in combat. And, uh, I get, I can remember, forget, I got into the, to the helicopter and for the first time, it seems so silly you know, I put on the headset so I could talk to the pilots and I didn't even know how to, to where the push to talk button was. Like literally I've got this headset on and I can hear, you know, the pilots in my helicopter talking. And I can also hear everybody else on the Hilo common network talking. Um, finally, one of the crew chiefs sort of punches me in the arm and, says, and shows me the push to talk button. And the pilot's yelling at me. So like, Hey man, are you going to answer me? I'm like, Oh my gosh, what an idiot I am. I mean, silly as it sounds, I, I didn't even know it because I'd never done it before, had no reason to ask anybody, but something that simple, man, you, you can't make any assumptions that, that the new guy doesn't, doesn't understand at all. Everybody's got to show him how to do something at least once. So anyway, off we go three minutes flight or so, um, and start our, our, our approach onto the target. And as we're, we're coming up on the, the, the timeline, they give us 30 second warning, um, my helicopter um, abruptly comes to a halt in the sky, and the pilot says uh, very distinctly, I can't see shit. Um, totally not what you want to hear on short final going in on the target. And what had happened, again, on this particular day, on this mission, my helicopter was the last one going in. All the helicopters before that preceded us kicked up so much dust and debris um, flying so low in that part of town that it was like flying into a sandstorm. And, you know, that ain't a good thing when you're in a helicopter flying, uh, you know, in, in a city. And so, you know, after some time, we are trying to figure out what to do. There's a big threat of RPGs from the ground. Decisions made. We're going to go in where we are. Um, 
boys start to go out. And as the last thing the pilot says to me is, hey, we're in the wrong spot. We're about three blocks short of your insertion point. Once you get underground, move in the direction of flight and you'll be good. I'm like, okay, Roger, you know, nothing you can do about it. You can't argue. You, you got to go. It's just fog of war kind of stuff. Um, so one, one sort of big deal here, again, for young, young leaders of all ages listening, uh, I'm the last one that's going to go in by design onto the rope. And as I'm kneeling on the helicopter floor, um, I go to adjust, put my goggles on, you know, my eye protection and the strap that holds the goggles on, uh, snaps, you know, Murphy's law right there. Um, and there, I don't have a backup. So I'm going in, in this sandy, dusty, you know, sandstorm before we even get on the ground, I'm at a disadvantage and I'm the leader without eye protection. I mean, what an idiot, my fault, totally my fault. You know, I clean the lenses, but you know, the, the, the back had dry rotted. I just hadn't, you know, I hadn't done the proper checks and that was totally no one's fault, but my own. Um, but what do you do? You just keep going. So I, I get on, uh, the rope, I start to slide down, finally get down to the bottom of the rope. And as I'm almost to the ground, I, I see below me, one of my soldiers is already spread out on the ground right at the bottom. And I'm thinking, my gosh, he's already been shot. Like we're, we must already be in a firefight. And, uh, I, I get down this wounded soldier is lying there. He's bleeding all over the place. He's all banged up. You know, a couple of Rangers are working on him and I say, where to get shot? And they say, Hey, Sergeant, he, he didn't get shot. He fell. I'm like, you've got to be shitting me. How do you, how, how did they, what do you mean he fell? And it, it turns out that Todd Blackburn had, uh, when he grabbed the rope to descend, the helicopter had, had keeled over a couple of degrees and he lost control and he fell off the rope, um, almost 60 feet and boom, here he is, you know, still alive. Um, but, but you know, knocking on heaven's door, not to be overly dramatic. So here we are, um, first day in charge in combat on the ground. And uh, I got a, a litter urgent casualty, um, talk to my radio guy to call for a medevac. The radio doesn't work. Um, we're in the wrong spot. And literally James in the first, you know, 20 seconds of being on the ground, um, those four things happen. We're put in the wrong spot, litter urgent casualty, new comms, and um, we're now in a firefight. I mean, by now we're getting, you know, shot at from from three directions. And I'm like, that's a that's a really bad way to 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 start any kind of a mission. Um, and that's just going on on my particular helicopter. There are 19 helicopters, you know, all over this battlefield. And that's just happening to me right then. Um, and I pause for a second to say, you know, this whole battle that you read about and you see in the movie, in, in one sense, it's a collection of several different battles. Uh, you know, everybody's got a different story from a different perspective of fighting all the way, you know, from the time the whole task force inserted till the time it all got out. And clearly, you know, I can only give give some commentary about my experience. But, um, you know, as far as the rest of the battlefield is going on, um, you know, the, the assault onto the target building, um, you know, as I recollect went, went pretty well. In fact, you know, not only they caught the two bad guys that we were after, but there were like 19 other, you know, blacklisted bad dudes that they rolled up that we were going to, um, 
you know, we were going to we were going to have to process and and evacuate from uh, from the target building um, really quickly. Because, again, this could be a three hour discussion um, back at Chuck four. We have to organize a, a, a medical evacuation for this soldier. And instead of the uh, the command coming to us, we send uh, an aid and letter team to take Todd Blackburn under fire from our location down to the target building, turn him over to the to the commander and the senior medic, and then evacuate him from there, which actually goes pretty well. Um, you know, from that point on, as the really the, the whole crux of the story goes, um, we all are un- of the understanding that we've got all the bad guys on the target. Um, it's just a question of the commander saying, collapse back to the target and we'll all leave from here when the first Blackhawk gets shot down. You know, I mean, kind of our mission had been, I don't want to say complete, but we had, the first part of the mission was accomplished. We got all the people we were after. And as this is, we're preparing for exfil, first helicopter gets shot down by an RPG. So complete change of mission now. The focus becomes getting to that first crash site, um, picking up all the survivors and the wounded and, you know, dead if there are any, and then extracting. Um, which in my mind, you know, was not, believe it, as silly as it sounds, I, I, I wouldn't have thought that that would be, I don't want to say as difficult, because that sounds really naive, but I, it seemed like just something like, you know, we I'd seen helicopters crash before where people walked off of it, you know? So I'm like, hey, you know, the helicopter crash, now we'll just have to drive over to pick them up. We'll, we'll put a thermite on the helicopter and we'll leave from there. Well, clearly, as you all know, if you've watched the, the movie or seen the book, it's not that easy. A um, lot of bad guys in town, huge firefights going on all around us. Um, while this focus of getting to the crash site is starting, unbeknownst to us, the second helicopter piloted by Mike Durant comes in to provide security. And as Mike's flying over the the battlefield, he takes an RPG. And uh, while it's not catastrophic, it's enough that sends him you know, on his way back to the airfield to DX his, uh, his bird and get another one to come back. And somewhere as he's flying back to the airfield, he has a catastrophic failure and uh, crashes the bird. And now we've got two Blackhawks down. We've already deployed our search and rescue bird. We already have our, 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 our ground forces moving in one direction. We've already called up our reserves from the airfield. We've alerted the UN, like everything's in motion and we've got this hel- this new helicopter crashed with um, kind of no one left to go insecure. So, I mean, it's gotten really shitty really quickly. And, um, you know, to, to kind of finish this, this quick uh, narrative, um, as you all may know, this story was written because of the actions of, of really three men, um, three Delta snipers that were flying overhead that watched all this happen, uh, saw Mike Durant's helicopter crash uh, away from the main battle site and immediately said to the commander, put us in. And the commander said, no, we can't put you in because you can't lose another helicopter, do what you can from above. And as the story goes, they asked a second time later on to go in and the commander said no. And finally on the third time with the crowd building, um, the commander said, "Okay, well, we'll put you in, and we'll 
we'll do we'll, we'll get a force to you when we can or words to that effect and so as this helicopter is making its approach it takes fire um brad hollings one of the delta snipers that's on the board is shot um gary gordon and randy shugart are able to deploy get in fight their way up to the helicopter and as you know the um only survivor of that crash is the pilot michael durant and he's pretty banged up he's in bad shape so they move him to safety um cannibalize all the weapons and then um hold their position as long as they can until they are you know sadly overrun by the enemy and uh, are killed protecting mike durant and as everyone knows Mike has been captured by a deed, which really sort of changes the whole, you know, ending to this story. Um, just a quick other aside, uh, the first helicopter, back to the first helicopter that's crashed. Um, unfortunately, when this helicopter crashes, the, the nose of the helicopter um, folds over the cockpit. And so the bodies of the two pilots um, have to be. You know, the pilot, the, the helicopter has to be, um, 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 what's the word, it has to be um, taken apart, deconstructed in order to evacuate the bodies. And that's the reason the task force in general is in overnight, because we're not going to leave, you know, we're certainly not going to leave anybody, let alone an American pilot, member of our task force, you know, into the enemy's hands. Um, this whole story you know, at the end, though, James, you know, it's a it's a sad story in one sense. Um, it's an amazing story in another as a participant. But uh, finishing all out and I'll, then I'll, I'll, I'll let you jump in and, and, and ask some more questions. Um, you know, eventually, we, you know, Michael Durant and uh, is repatriated, you know, a couple of weeks later after being held by Mohammed Adid. Adid basically brokered. Uh, for lack of a better word, a peace deal. He brokered a way out of it. Um, and our forces were um, sent home. You know, I mean, that was it. We, we finished that battle, captured the bad guys, repatriate our bodies, and then politically the decision made to leave Somalia and come home. Um, on the good side of this story, beyond just the, the amazing stories of valor um, and bravery and tenacity and just uh, American will, um, you know, Gary Gordon and Randy Shukart, the two Delta snipers who were killed, um, protecting Michael Durant were awarded posthumously the medal of honor. And that was the most incredible thing to literally say that we were in the company of those kinds of heroes, you know, in a shithole country that nobody cared about. And yet, they they gave everything they possibly could um protecting one of their own in the worst situation i mean that's of all the stuff narratives of all the stories of all the lenses you know the the story of gary gordon and randy shugard and brad hollings is um you know to this day just an, an incredible um picture of of the greatest things that that americans do because at the end you know, doing the right thing for the right reason in a bad spot. Obviously, you've just, you know, what, what you just said in the last 20 minutes or so, there are a million things that I could could talk about. But I think one of the things that really struck me um, was 
Well, firstly, as as you were saying, so there you were, you know, your unit before not seeing a lot of action, and then you know when you're deployed, you you come to pretty much a worst case when it comes to to combat. Um, you got a you know vastly outnumbered, thousands and thousands and thousands of Somalians. A lot of them hopped up on on drugs that time of day as well. Um, but the as you said, the kind of heroism is the word that you like or not, but the courage of the Delta snipers, for example, knowing that they were most likely gonna die when they went down. When, when the guys went back to the base, bringing the casualties and then, you know, got new uh, ammunition and then drove back out there again, knowing that they were probably not going to make it. That's the one thing that I see. And again, it's falling back on that training and also the kind of men that the organizations that you belong to had had found first, because obviously, you know, you weren't just made, you were found and then trained that sense of brotherhood that come hell or high water, even if you ended up dying, that you were going to be there for the man you're right and the man you're left is really what I got from that whole story. Yeah, absolutely. No, it is a, um, you, you know, it's a story of, of, of combat. I mean, it's a story of the brothers in arms. It's the esprit de corps. It's, it's everything that, that you just mentioned um, that is shared and born out of the crucible experience for, for sure. The, the the last part of the film as well, the the Mogadishu Mile, you guys were left to the point where where um they had to basically run that last mile. There's some narrative spoken in the documentaries and, and I guess suggestion in the film as well, where the Somalis at one point let you guys you know, didn't give resistance towards the end. Do you think that was um a thing, as it were, or do you think you'd actually, by that point, worn them down so much that they didn't even give chase? Um, you know, that, that's a good question, and I, I couldn't give uh, uh, the empirical answer. Um, I do know now. So, just quick fact: I actually got out. I myself, the real Matt Eversman, got out uh, in a vehicle the night before. Um, so that you see in the movie with Sergeant Eversman running, that was not me. Um, the the reality, though, is that. Um, you know, there was like this imaginary, and this is just my, was my observation of being in the city and then on the way out of the city, there was like this imaginary demarcation line where uh, all of a sudden, like on one side of the street, everybody was shooting, and then literally you'd go a block and nobody would shoot, um, nobody being the bad guys. So I think that there was probably a little bit of that. Um, I think also, listen, there were a lot of, you know, we, we, put, we put a... I, nobody likes to say this in a chest beating way, but, um, you know, I mean, we, we, we put a lot of damage on, uh, on, on a deeds militia that day. I mean, there, there was just, um, uh, absolute, you know, this, this was a violent, violent day, um, for them. The estimates I read afterwards were there were like 10,000 armed Somalis, um, uh, you know, 150 American trigger pullers on the ground. And, um, you know, the, the, the staggering, the numbers of, of, um, enemy that were, were killed and wounded, um, it was just unbelievable. So I believe also there was this notion that a deed realized, Hey, I, I've got, a, I've got, I've got a soldier. Um, we don't need anything else. Cause this is gonna, gonna be more bargaining chip. As it turned out, he was pretty smart in doing it that way. Um, and I also think they were attrited to the point they, they couldn't, they couldn't fight anymore. And again, I don't mean that to sound like, um, you know, the, the juvenile chest beating bravado, but I, I do believe that 
you know, literally they, they couldn't fight anymore. Listen, um, you know, for all the enemy's actions, it would have been so easy for them while our force was in the city to just go invade the airfield. You know, I mean, you think, why didn't they just go take over the airfield? They, they, it wasn't that strongly armed. It wasn't that hard, that, that strongly defended. Um, if they controlled the airfield, you know, where are we going to go? You know, where are we, the guys in the city? They, they would, they, they would have been able to kill every single one of us had they taken over the airfield, which they, you know, ostensibly could have done, but I don't think they could have because they didn't have the bodies and they didn't want to fight. So the long rambling answer, it's just my one guy's opinion. I, I think it's a little bit of all of that all wrapped in. I just think that they, they probably realized afterwards they, they no mas for them. Yeah. Well, I know we've got to be, you know, cognizant of time. I know you've got a, a call coming soon. Um, but I want to touch on one thing. And it, again, as as a first responder and in putting myself in the shoes of, of you and your men out there, it wasn't you weren't fighting, you know, like Nazi Germany where you've got opposing uniforms and it's, you know, men of your age facing you uh, the other side of the trenches, as it were. But you had women and children, you know, with AKs actively shooting at you. What was the the psychological trauma for you like once you came home after that all sank in? Um, none. Uh, and again, I don't mean to be glib about it. Uh, you know, uh, none. I think um, the this idea, and I've always tried to explain it like this to people, um, you know, the first lesson you learn, or that I, I should say you, the, one of the, one of the most dramatic yet simple lessons I learned when this task force started to train to go to Mogadishu, one of the Delta guys said, no matter what, look at their hands. Doesn't matter who it is, look at their hands. People can't harm you if they got nothing in their hands. So look at their hands. That's where their weapon's going to be. And it seems so simple. Um, and I'm like, wow, that makes sense. Nobody told me that. So using that idea now, it becomes, hey, um, that let's just start at the big picture. There is somebody with a weapon in their hands that means they want to do me harm and then the second kind of graduation in this exercise is um man woman or child am i going to willingly let them shoot the soldier to my right or left or myself because they're a woman and child that means to do me harm and the answer of course is no you can't like you just no nobody gets a pass at killing uh, one of our, our our comrades because they're a woman or child, like that's nonsensical. Um, so the answer to that question, um, you know, I, I think it's one of those that that plays out great in the psychology books. But at the end of the day, you know, people are just as dead whether they're on the, you know, a fifteen-year-old shooting you or an eighty-five-year-old shooting you, man, woman, or child. It doesn't matter. You're just as dead if they shoot you. Yeah, and that's that's actually great for for the law enforcement people listening because i'm sure that you know sometimes they have that exact problem you know they're faced with in on the streets absolutely now and listen now the psychology and again don't i don't want to be so glib that um you know being in a gunfight doesn't doesn't have an effect on the person in that gunfight um that's all sort of the whole second story of how we how we do come back how we go through grief how we go through um, the re, the, you know, the re-entry into normal life and dealing with the psychology of it all, which is way many pay grades above me. 
other than my my armchair quarterback, uh, you know, Lucy Van Pelt, um, you know, psychology is, you know, faith, family, friends, um, maybe not always in that order. But those those are the three things how I dealt with it after getting home from the battlefield. Um, you know, that was my support network. And sometimes it was just faith. Sometimes it was whoever my closest friend was nearby to talk to or the support of my family always. But that was, that was sort of my, that would be my answer. Ultimately, how do you deal with all this stuff at the end? That's how it is. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. Well, I'll make sure that we also talk about your projects that you have coming up. Um, a fascinating one for me is your new documentary, Send Me. So if you wouldn't mind telling people about that and when we can yes. anticipate it. So thanks, James. So listen, I, you know, the, these things in life, just always be open to opportunity. And uh, when we moved down here to Florida, I, I, I randomly, literally randomly walked into uh, a gentleman who became a very good friend of mine, a guy named Tim Malloy, who had been um, a career journalist, uh, a, a broadcast journalist. Um, and he had also embedded um, multiple times since the beginning of the war uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he had, you know, said to me, he's like, you know, we should go over, you know, at some point and do a show about, you know, the advances in um, battlefield medicine since Somalia. And, you know, seems sort of like far-fetched, but eventually we were, we were able to do it. And, um, Man, we had a great show. Hey, James, I just got to pause one second and just let the dogs in. Can you hold on for one sec? Sorry about that. We have these two knucklehead Labradors, and they just are oh, keep you beaten. And they just start scratching. <laughs> no. So anyway, we we had this opportunity um, that Tim put together earlier this spring to uh, go travel with the Air Force uh, to Landstuhl, Germany, and then to Bagram Air Force Base, and then out to Jalalabad, Afghanistan. And just spend some time with all the different uh, stages of medical units uh, along the path. Uh, so as it turns out, we got to this um, outpost in, in Jalalabad and uh, just literally within an hour of an Afghan soldier uh, stepping on an IED. And um, we were able to follow like the entire journey from not from the point of impact where where this this commando was injured but literally from the dust off uh landing to the first trauma center all the way back from bog to bagram to all the surgical units i mean it was fascinating and we were able to capture all this and put it into this documentary uh that we have called send me and uh you know it's all about the service of these these great young men and women from the uh, enlisted medics to the the docks on the battlefield, you know, working at these uh, class two trauma centers all the way up to, you know, the biggest hospitals in Landstuhl. So we're hoping to have this. We would originally hope to have it out uh, this coming October or sometime around October 3rd or 4th with the 25th anniversary. But we've had to do some re-edits of which is way out of my pay grade that I don't understand or I just nod my head to. So I'm hoping probably towards the end of next month um, it'll be out. It's probably going to start on PBS, but uh, absolutely we'll keep you posted. Uh, I've seen some of the rough scripts or the rough pictures, and I must admit, despite my face for radio, it's a pretty neat documentary. And most importantly, not only have we advanced 
a lot and we are saving a lot more lives and uh you know where it, it's critical how how you know to emphasize how well our young men and women uh particularly in the medical communities have done uh and what they're doing on the battlefield it's just incredible uh but probably more important than that james is you know this is a reminder we we just filmed this you know a few months ago in 2018 and a lot of people need to remember we still have soldiers deployed and they're still in harm's way. And there are still bad people out there that mean to do us harm. Um, and that can't be forgotten either. So we saw it as a, as a two-part you know, a, a operation. One, to show how great our medics and medical teams are doing. And two, to remind America that we still have um, great men and women that are downrange um, you know, doing bad things to bad people for us. Yeah, and I can't wait to see it. It sounds incredible, and obviously it would be very pertinent for, for the medics out there listening, even if they're in the uh, civilian side, not the military side. Absolutely. Listen, you know, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I've kind of hogged up all the, the, the conversation talking about me, but, you know, as you and I were chatting before we started, you know, the similarities are, 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 are so, you know, between our professions are, are exactly, they're just so similar. And, um, you know, while maybe not every um, medic or fireman, um, you know, is running, you know, has somebody shooting at him, though I suspect that that does happen, too. Um, you know, the the dealing in the crucible, doing your job in the crucible, uh, and particularly when ultimately it is about saving lives, um, you know, we, we, we got to always be like you said, we always are preparing for the worst constantly, because I'm telling you, if you can think it, it can happen. And um, when it happens, trying to learn on the job ain't the way to do it. Yeah. Well, I would love if it's okay to do a part two because I know we've run out of time. But um, I've, I've got so much more I'd love to ask you if you have some more time in the future. Yeah, James, listen, absolutely. And I'm sorry that uh, I, I should have told you that up front that I, I had a, a little bit of a hard stop this morning. But, um, man, I please let me know when, when I can come back on. I, I, again, we can bore people. <laughs> Uh, no one's going to be bored. So very quickly, though, I know you do public speaking as well. So where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Yeah. So listen, first of all, you can go to Eversman Advisory, all one word, uh, dot com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me on Twitter. And um, clearly, they can find me through your 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 links um but yeah shoot me a note at matt at eversmanadvisory.com i'm happy to chat help whatever i can do find us on the web or uh certainly on linkedin would look forward to uh chatting with anybody brilliant all right well thank you so much for being so generous with your time i will let you go but um i am uh, looking forward to reconnecting in the future as well Absolutely. Hey, James, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate all you're doing. And, uh, uh, you know, I hope if you, your, our paths will cross in person uh, one of these days uh, on the east coast of Florida. But uh, thanks for all you do. And you be safe and everybody listening, you know, you know, check your six, keep your powder dry. And, um, you know, I hate to say this because it, it galls me to give the seals credit, but uh, <laughs> they really do have a great saying when they said the only DC day was yesterday. And uh, that really is magnificent. And of course, I say that with love for, you know, our Navy brothers. But um, yeah, the only easy day was yesterday. So get after it. <laughs>